Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts, Dale Yuzuki, Cindy Lawley, and Sarantis Klamidis from Olink Proteomics, talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers, and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts, Dale, Cindy, and Sarantis. Welcome to the Proteomics and Proximity podcast. This is your host, Dale Yuzuki, along with... Cindy Lolly and... Sarandis Lamidas. We want to welcome you today. We've got some pretty exciting news. And by news, I mean our recent paper. And Cindy, would you like to introduce it? Sure, sure. So this is a, a paper that came from Daniel Katz and Rob Gertsten and a, a series of co-authors as well. It's in Science Advances, so a very prestigious uh, journal. And we've known that the work had been done for quite a while, and we knew that it was going through peer review. And so we've just been very excited to see it come out, and, and we're excited to talk about it today. It's a, it's a Go ahead. Pro, yeah, sure. It's a comparison paper among proteomic profiling platforms. It looks at uh, antibody methods versus aptamer methods, the pros and cons, pluses and minuses. I think that uh, both platforms incredibly valuable. So the two platforms that were compared are the Somalogic platform, their 1.3K, and uh, and also their 5K. Uh, and the Olink platform, this was our, our previous product, the Explorer 1536, which they uh, they call the Olink 1.5K. So, yeah, Dale, do you want to give us a little bit of background on Somalogic? Sure, happy to. You know, I was a protein product manager for Kyogen back in the early 2000s, and this is maybe 2002. 2001, I was at the Protein Science Conference, and I met a very interesting individual named Larry Gold. He was the founder of Somalogic, a company genius. in Boulder, Colorado. He's a and, genius, yeah, really. Cindy says, yeah, he's a genius, a remarkable individual. He made quite an impression on me because he was working on a very unusual approach to protein detection. Instead of using uh, recombinant antigens and inoculating uh, goat or mouse or rat to develop antibodies, right, or develop hybridomas for monoclonals. He actually was using a method of in vitro, I'm sorry, uh, in, in, it's in organisms like microorganisms, a, a, a series of selective processes to find out particular synthetic nucleotides, either RNA or DNA, that would bind very specifically to proteins. This is called aptamers. These are synthetic stretches of DNA and RNA that bind to proteins. You might say, well, we have DNA binding proteins, RNA binding proteins all the time. Well, yeah, transcription factors, what have you. But these are proteins that are, have been evolved to bind to DNA sequence. Now we're doing the reverse. We're actually finding out what sequence can bind to a particular protein that you know, doesn't normally bind to DNA. Well, they've evolved the technology, evolve, huh? so in, not only to use natural oligo oligonucleotides, they actually have uh, developed something called somomers, which are unnatural uh, nucleotides, because if you think about the positive charges of DNA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the, you're going to have certain limitations in terms of how the DNA and RNA can fold uh, for using natural nucleotides. So they've developed some chemicals they call somomers to uh, expand the kind of uh, synthetic aptamers, that's what, what it's called, 
to bind to more and more proteins. So they've scaled the technology in 2017 or maybe even earlier. They published some really high-profile papers. And what these papers did was look at 1,300 different proteins out of uh, the circulation and connect it to the genomics. So what they would do is, frankly, since you had a million genotypes from a, an Illumina array, right, a genotyping array, and you have all these genotypes from individuals, they can do GWAS to protein level using the SomaLogic um, 1.3K as a readout. Again, they're doing GWAS to the circulating protein level and then connect that to phenotypes. And the first high-impact papers in nature and in science were pretty remarkable because you're talking about genomics and you're tying it in to the circulating proteome, which you then can tie into disease. Yeah, and I'll, ask, I'll, I'll also add is, you know, prevailing technologies and mass spectrometry, of course, looking at proteomics, um, amazing advances there and, and a lot of um, transition to the clinic, some of the discoveries there. The idea of being able to, um, to hook out of um, a a plasma sample, for example, uh, to hook with an affinity-based method like a somomer uh, allows you to do the low abundant proteins, the ones that just may not show up very often or in very high abundance in plasma, allows you to start to look at patterns of, of those proteins as well with health and disease. And so I think this is the amazing innovation is that, you know, in, in mass spec, of course, you can, you can do this, but it takes a lot more sample and doing it in large numbers of samples can be challenging simply because of the, uh, of, of what it takes to put a service wrapper around running many samples through a mass spec. Um, I, I think you platform. bring up a really good point, Cindy, which is people just say, well, why can't you just use mass spec? It's a mature technology. It's been around a long time. HDLLDL, we've got a lot of great clinical labs from it. Exactly. Yep. Yes. Yep. But the, it's the level of abundance, right? In that there's a number of really important molecules that aren't very prevalent in the circulation that both uh, the SOMOMER technology and the only technology can pick up that mass spec simply cannot. And you also bring up the other point, which is mass spec is a, has a lot of uh, sort of upfront steps, right? In terms of if you're doing liquid chromatography, tandem mass spec, right? There's a whole bunch of sequential uh, steps you have to do that is just not high throughput. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and managing, and yeah, managing the, the, the variability yeah, Sarantis, sorry, go ahead, please. No, I'm sorry. I was talking about mass spec and uh, plasma. We know that uh, in plasma, most of, there are like 40 or 50 proteins that are super abundant. And when you mm. try to run a mass spec, you, you, let's say, mask all the other proteins. And for this, it's uh, for low abundant proteins. I think uh, affinity uh, capture uh, assays like uh, all link assays is help to identify this because you overcome this problem of mass spec. Yeah, so, it's, a nice so, complementary, so, it's a nice complementary approach, obviously. Yeah, Sarantis, it would be great if people could get a kind of an overview of what how Olink is different from the Somalogic approach because of the two platforms being compared in this paper. Would you mind tackling that? Yeah, I mean, in this paper, actually, uh, they have used Olink Explore 1536 as our first uh, explore based on NGS platform and uh, SomaScan 1.3, but also the SomaScan 5K, that's the most expanded version with more, let's say, reagents. Uh, and they profile a Jackson Head study around uh, 500 uh, 
500 people and heritage family study 219. Uh, in the first case, when they see, they try to see overlapping between SOMASCAN 1.3 and OLIC, they see like roughly 500 proteins they overlap. Uh, when they switched to the expanded version of SCOMASCAN, they were able to see like 1,100 uh, actually proteins. Uh, the nice advantage of, of OLIC, of course, is the NGS-based approach and uh, the antibody capturing that uh, gives obviously more more specificity compared to to aptamers. But uh, so if I maybe you can you can yes please. So if I understand correctly, you mentioned the Jackson Heart study of what some five hundred individuals. Uh, the, yeah, the 500, 500 individuals, yes. And uh, I yeah. have to say here, they had all the, for all of these uh, individuals, they had like uh, whole genome sequencing data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so really nice genetic background information. So Absolutely. as far as a comparison study, right? Uh, actually, before we talk about the study itself, Cindy, did you do some research on Jackson Heart? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So Jackson Heart Study is a, a community-based, it's a, a longitudinal cohort study. So uh, essentially they're looking at um, understanding cardiovascular disease primarily, but also renal respiratory diseases. The nice thing and what I love about the Jackson Heart Study is that it's African-Americans. So it's um, it's really helping us get a view into proteomic variability not just within uh, the Northern European populations that have been characterized so well genetically, as well as as now um, quite a few of them have done proteomically, like the UK Biobank, but it uh, it allows us to get some sense of the diversity in in Af- African American di- African diaspora. So um, yeah, the uh, Jackson and Jackson Heart Study then is referring to Jackson, Mississippi. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So then, yeah. the majority of people then are from Mississippi area. That's right. Yeah. And and when you say longitudinal, are you meaning that what they're followed up over time? Exactly. Exactly. So it, they were recruited and uh, and then followed over uh, over time. The nice thing about that is as people evolve in in their as they get older and they have health challenges, those health challenges can be better understood by looking back at samples before they had diagnosis of disease, and that's going to help us develop more preventative approaches for uh, for diseases today. Our, our healthcare system is a is a diagnosis based system, uh, not only within the U.S. but also you know worldwide. Really, the the funding for uh, healthcare is it revolves around diagnoses, and so this this concept or this ability, and I think this is I would I would argue this might be um, one of Larry Gold's big motivations in developing uh, of the somologic technology, I think we're really excited about this for Olink as well, is the ability to be more preventative and understand risk, not only from the genetic perspective that has been enabled over the last 20 years, but also from the proteomics perspective. And so understanding proteomic risk at any given moment, we um, appears to be providing a little bit more of a window into more real-time health. And so I think that's the, the important aspect of having longitudinal data like this, especially in this underrepresented population. So this is a pretty expensive undertaking because we're talking about whole genome sequence out of these 568 individuals, right? And then you're also talking about Olink uh, 1.5, Olink Explorer 1536, plus Somalogic 1.3K on all the same samples. Do I understand that correctly? 
That's right. And as far as then, what can you tell me about the Heritage Study? Yeah, so this is health risk factors and and exercise training and genetics. So the the Heritage stands for for literally that health risk factors, exercise training, and genetics. And it's a it's a um, a, a partnership among I think it's seven universities. Actually, I don't have those seven universities. Maybe it's five universities. Sorry. Yeah, I think it's five universities, and I don't have them off the top of my head, but they're across U.S. as well as Canada. So um, really trying to get get information uh, across a large segment of the population. Okay. And again, whole genome sequencing information. Is that right, Sarantis, that there was whole genome sequencing within the heritage as well? Whole yeah. Genome. yeah, yes, whole genome Yeah, sequencing. which like you said, you know, Dale, it, it blows my mind because I think about, you know, the exome, um, sequencing consortium from the UK Biobank, which was a massive undertaking. But still, exome sequencing is only about 1% to 3% of a whole genome sequence. So we're talking a lot of sequencing, to your point. And this is really important, especially for health equity, because we really have an underrepresentation of African diaspora in, um, in sequencing data. And so you know, being biased by a chip that might not have a lot of, of content that was mm. designed, you know, a, a genotyping chip, I'm thinking about the comparison between a genotyping chip versus whole genome sequencing. It's sort of like, mm. um, it's like getting a satellite view of, of a population census. You can take a picture from the satellite and you can estimate the representation in those those um, buildings that are in an eight-block area, for example, or you can go house to house and you can knock on the doors of every one of those residences. Which one is going to give you a more accurate representation of the population? The knocking on the doors, but the um, it's going to be a lot more expensive as well, right? So whole genome sequencing goes base to base to the extent that our, our sequencing methods allow that, and we're going to see diversity that we might not know about before we did the... Um, we developed that genotyping chip initially. You know, that's such an excellent point because you just assume, oh, you just get the genotypes and then you capture the majority of the variation. But what you're saying is, yes, the whole exome sequencing doesn't capture a fraction of that variation because, right, these SNPs are in non-coding regions. That's right. And then Many of them. The whole, and to be able to get them the whole genome sequence, we can get a very fine-grained look, right, at the variation within the population and then the connection to risk and disease. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, and you don't know what you don't know, right? And so, uh, yeah, so the fact that this was whole genome sequence, I just think, you know, Rob's team you know, just did a phenomenal job of bringing together important data to really uh, advance our understanding, not only of the two platforms, but also of advancing health equity. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was something else That's I great. was going to, yeah, I'm sure it'll come up again if I think of it, but yeah. it, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, essential that we characterize diversity in these populations. Sure. So, Sarantis, oh. what can you tell me then about the f- primary findings? Yeah, actually, uh, really nicely, they try to uh, see if there's a correlation with CSPQTL. It's something that comes again. We have seen it in other papers as well that uh, all in based on antibodies has a nice correlation with CSPQTLs. And actually, 40% of the proteins from Olink panel uh, is associated to, to new PQTLs. And I think that is a really important uh, finding, especially if you want to identify new biomarkers 
and drug targets, right? Are you agree? And yeah. uh, it's something that and we have seen. We have seen a lot of cohort studies, actually. And uh, Sadie, maybe you, you can add something from your side and from your experience as well on that. I was just going to define CISPQTLs again. Just yes. I know we've talked about it previously uh, on on episodes of this podcast. But as a reminder, a CISPQTL is a correlation in genotypes at a locus uh, with protein levels. Again, just a correlation, but it, it um, is something you can detect through statistical analysis in large data sets. And of course, the larger your data set, the more your power to detect any association, right? So a CISPQTL is when a variant is correlated with protein levels. If that variant is within a million bases or one megabase of the gene itself that is coding for that protein, that's what we call a CISPQTL. So if, so it, you know, it makes good logical sense, makes us feel good about, about the measurement of the protein if you actually see a correlation between a region that is coding for the protein and that protein itself. The, um, the other thing to say about that is there are good biological reasons why sometimes you might not see a cis-PQTL. Uh, you know, there's protein-protein interactions that might knock that protein level off of a, a correlation directly with that region. But, uh, but it is a nice feel-good measure that you're measuring the right protein when you do see a cis-PQTL association. And that's a tool that this team used. And to be absolutely clear, cis means it's within that one megabase. Close, and yeah, cis P close. Stands, yeah. Yes, and P yeah. stands for protein, and QTL stands for quantitative trait loci. Yeah. So you're saying that a particular SNP genotype, the loci, is actually controlling the level of protein, protein. as a quantitative I would say appears trait. to be controlling. Okay. Appears to be controlling. Associated. Right? Yeah, it's associated. Right. You, Statistically you associated. So yeah, again, you can't say causality at that point okay. where you're just looking at correlations. Yeah. So okay. we're associating the presence of a SNP within 500,000 uh, bases of a particular gene, and that SNP is positively associated with the level of that protein in terms of O-link quantitated or somologic quantitated. Yeah, it's that associated. Yep, yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, and the value of these PQTLs is... So the cis PQTLs in this paper were used as a as a surrogate measure of specificity. So, but but in general, you know, cis PQTLs as well as trans PQTLs, and those are ones that are, uh, you know, correlation with protein level that's outside of the gene that's coding for that protein, and that means outside of you know that one megabase uh, region around that gene. That um, that those are valuable because they help us understand the pathways that may be important for diseases that are associated with not only the proteins, but also diseases that we've identified in the past through GWAS, you know, this catalog of amazing GWAS associations, uh, it helps us understand what protein pathways are involved in those diseases. And then, of course, if we have a sense of protein pathways important in diseases, that gives us a, the ability to start to propose therapeutic targets or ways that, that we may develop therapies to go after these proteins or to go after the mRNAs that are, that are um, translating to proteins to, uh, to, um, to then have a, an, an approach to either nudge people back, back into health away from disease, that's that preventative side, or as you know, what, what our healthcare system pays for today, which is drugs to treat diseases once they've been diagnosed. So here we get the payoff of the Human Genome Project, right? 
which is yep. new yep. drugs, new diagnostics, new therapies, potential for cures. Is that correct? Potential for cures, right? Which is, you know, is mm. right now, what do we say? 90% of clinical trials, uh, I think that's, that's the latest number that I've heard. 90% of mm. clinical trials are, are, are failing. And mm-hmm. that ones that you have genetic information going into the clinical trial are, are, have been, you know, reported to be twice as successful. So twice as likely to be successful. So the question is, you know, what can proteomic signatures from Somalogic or OLINK, what can these approaches do to help improve the success of clinical trials? I think that's yet to be seen, but that's certainly the hope of, mm. of, you know, the future and using leveraging large data sets like these important studies like Jackson Heart Study and the Heritage Family Study. So, uh, Sarantis, you mentioned 40% in terms of CIS-PQTLs sort of getting yes. to that, right? What yeah, did yeah. you mean yeah. by that? They means that from the old uh, 1,500 proteins from, uh, that they checked from OLIC platform, more than 40% they are correlating with new CIS-PQTLs. And I think uh, that was really amazing. That's a really amazing number because it gives the possibility of identifying new biomarkers, for example, as you mentioned before, a new drug, uh, a new drug targets. And uh, where is the and the nice thing of the Olin has is not not only uh, where correlating proteins they are having CSPQTLs, but also when they don't have correlation with the soma assay, we have. CSPQTLs. That means they have a really nice capability, Olink Explore, Explore, to identify CSPQTLs. That's that's the take-home message from this. And so what was the percentage relative to SOMA logic? I think SOMA, if I'm not mistaken, is like roughly 28% or something. I see. So the higher percentage than the overall numbers, were they also, the overall numbers were different? Mm, Yes, yes, of course, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so I think I think I'm just looking in the paper as you're talking, Sorantis. I think for Soma, there was 370 of 1301 uh, CISPQTLs detected. For Olink, it was 575 of of 1472 total measurements yeah. uh, where they detected CISPQTLs. But you know, like I said, there's there's good reasons why we might not sometimes detect a CISPQTL. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the interesting aspects that I didn't see them. Um, I saw a little bit of this, but you know the the ones that they have in common between the two platforms. You know, if you can see a CISPQTL on one, that would suggest that there should be a detectability of of a CISPQTL. Then you should be seeing that on the other. And in fact, I think the comparison between the two there was, I think the median comparison was about forty one percent between the two platforms. Is that am I remembering that right? I don't. I didn't bring that pull that figure up, but. Um, and so it's it's compelling, right? To to wonder, you know, are, is is one platform actually pulling in a, a um, phosphorylated version of the protein as as well as the protein uh, without the phosphorylation? Is you know what, which may be good information to have if you map those epitopes, then you can um, you can determine that. I think, but uh, but I think that's the value of being able to look at at, at both technologies together yeah. and and so, the complementarity of them and I think David uh, does a nice job of of characterizing that and I will also point to something you showed me I think it was you Sarantis you showed me the tweet um, that David put up on Twitter that has a beautiful you know walks us through his primary findings which maybe we can put a, a link to oh, that tweet in the show notes oh, yeah, I see 
Yeah, you're referring to Daniel Katz, the first author. Oh, I'm I know so it's hard sorry. to I said... visualize. Oh, no worries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to visualize large numbers, right? We're talking about roughly, uh, what, 370 out of 1,300 for Somalogic, 575 about of almost 1,500. Um, and so, yeah, these numbers, they're hard to remember, but nonetheless, I think the take-home message, right, is that when you compare both side-by-side on these particular platforms, sort of the the uh, findings of SysPQTLs is really, really important. It can be useful as a discovery tool. The overlap, was what you're saying, the overlap between the 370 and 575 wasn't 100%. It was pretty low, is what you're saying. Yeah. Is that right? You know, I think this specificity uh, analysis that they did was... Um was super important. I think another aspect where we weren't showing up as as um, as beneficial as I would love for our assay to show up was in you know precision in what they assess as precision and repeated measurements. So, Sarantis, you've had a really good explanation of that. Do you want to go over what they talked about in the paper there? Yeah, actually, um, authors they have seen that. Only has bigger CVs than uh, Soma platform. There could be a lot of reasons, but they speculate that uh, one explanation could come from the fact that only we are using small sample volume for uh, for our assays. Another explanation could be for the fact uh, that uh, only antibodies that are polyclonals, and uh, this could affect precision, but may also make more resistant, make them more resistant to binding interference. That means that it will capture some uh, complexes, some protein complexes that Aptamers could not see or could not capture because their interface are covered by the yeah, so, proteins. So one of the advantages of using higher volumes in an assay certainly, I think, might be that your coefficients of variation or these CVs, which are a surrogate measure of, you know, we've got these surrogate measures of, of precision, right? Repeated measures being right spot on top of, of each other. That um, that that might be you know a, a good reason to 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 have higher volumes. There's trade-offs, right? So yeah, Absolutely. so interesting. And uh, they have seen also that if we pulled sample plasma, then we improve already the CVs. That also could uh, oh, interesting. Help I missed that. Yeah, that's I've seen this happening. They have seen also yeah. this happening. So one of the very strengths of Olink, which is using minimal sample volumes, what Explore only needs like six microliters, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, is actually yeah. a weakness, which is interesting in terms of the variability. But I think we can say that the PQTL results, right, were speak for themselves. But there's another angle in the paper that I think is some of the strongest data. And this is regard to phenotypes, right? Yeah, and it speaks to, I mean, just to touch back on the precision. So mm. in a vacuum or in a, you know, with, when only thinking about precision alone, when you have higher CVs or higher um, variability, you need bigger sample sizes to detect a difference between, say, cases and controls in a biomarker study, for example. Uh, and so if, so if you're just thinking about precision in that way, it's really important to, um, as a consideration for power. And so then, Dale, uh, this is where the rubber hits the road, is right trying to make a phenotypic association uh, in the real world with disease. Uh, and so, do you want to summarize that for us? from the paper, the phenotypic uh, results? Yeah, those phenotypic results were really interesting because they pulled out some one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different phenotypes from 
total cholesterol to EGFR to body mass index. Yeah, and leptin, they show this bar yeah, chart yeah. where the Olink PQTLs, right, compared to the somalogic PQTLs, there's this huge difference on a phenotype by phenotype basis. And thinking about it, it's, well, this is really what you care about, which is phenotypic associations, right, between the genetics and the particular thing you're measuring, right? If it's uh, hemoglobin A1C, if it's systolic blood pressure, right? These are biomarkers. These are phenotypes from the population that they really care about. Why? Uh, they even have an association with ASCVD risk score. And if you've taken a physical recently, right, they'll, your doctor will actually have you calculate your ASCVD risk score. And I was really surprised in my last physical, right, where I'm punching in the numbers and they're saying, okay, Dale, you've got an elevated risk at 4% and, you know, we need to keep an eye on this. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, those phenotypes are real world, everyday, rubber meets the road, like you mentioned, Cindy. Yeah, it's exciting. I think it's because this is really what Larry Gold had in mind. I think this is what um, Ulf Lundgren had in mind in terms of, you know, being able to broaden uh, a discovery platform for proteomics. And uh, and, and, and I think as an example, the- I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please go, go, Sorrentis, Please. No, as an example, brings the bring the HP seventy. It's a, a really known and, and famous. Uh, yeah, he shot. He shot. Yeah, he's protein. protein seven. Yeah, 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 and it's connected, uh, correlated with uh, with the BMI. And there are a lot of studies nowadays uh, for drugs uh, against the activity of this uh, of this protein. Actually, that's uh, that's really it's a really exciting finding. And regarding heat shock protein seventy, they also then do a handful of elizas at the very end of the paper. Uh, Sorrentis, you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean they try to to see which of the soma or holding uh, house they correlate. Uh, better with uh, ELISA. Of course, they use ELISA that they are, let's say, commercial available. For this, they focus on these uh, five uh, targets, let's say. And uh, overall, it's really striking how uh, all link data correlate really nicely with, El- with, ELIDA, with ELISA data. And uh, again, uh, they focus with HP17 and a handful of other proteins that uh, really nicely correlate uh, the two assays, giving, uh, again, a bonus to, to Olling for, for specificity. And I think you agree on that, guys. Well, and I think I think the ability to translate to a clinical tool, and, and to be fair, ELISA is immunoassay-based, right? It's immunoabsorbent-based, and we're an immu- immunoassay. Olink uses two antibodies for each protein, whereas Soma has this, this novel aptamer technology, this synthetic uh, aptamer uh, technology that they've innovated. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's something I like about about antibody based is that so many of our our therapeutic targets that we that we you know use that have passed clinical trials are, are antibody based. So, well, thank you both for really excellent analysis of a side by side comparison paper. For those interested in the reference, this is Katz DH. This is Daniel Katz, the first author. The senior author is Rob Gersten. The title is Proteomic Profiling Platforms Head-to-Head, Leveraging Genetics and Clinical Traits to Compare Aptamer and Antibody-Based Methods. 
Yeah. Thank you very go, much for joining us today. Thank you very go much. Go Beth Deaconess, right? It's go a great Beth paper. Deaconess. Yeah. All right. Beth Israel we'll see Deaconess. You next time. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Thank you very Thanks much. All. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com.